0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Matthew 26, verses 14 to 16.
1: Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. One of the darkest moments in all of human history is the betrayal of Jesus by one of his disciples. It also marks the beginning of the crucifixion narrative. We see Jesus, holy and harmless, betrayed into the hands of his adversaries by one who professed to be his follower, one who professed to love him. Judas was one that Jesus drew close, one who saw his power, his mercy and his miracles and yet in deceit and hypocrisy, Judas handed Jesus up for 30 pieces of silver Judas' betrayal would become the catalyst for a harrowing series of events that would unfold and lead to the horrific torture and humiliating death of our Jesus at the cross. Jesus foretells this in the preceding verses of Matthew 26, where in his last meal with his disciples, the bread that will be broken and the cup which foreshadows the shedding of his blood and the absorbing of all of God's wrath for all sin. What a wonderful opportunity today is, what a wonderful season Easter is for us as God's people, a time for us to immerse ourselves in the beauty of the gospel and to reflect on who Jesus is, what he endured, and why Jesus did what he did, that we might be reconciled, purchased, and redeemed. Matthew 27, verses 32 to 44. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, and when they came to the place of Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots, Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, "'This is Jesus, the King of the Jews.' Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying... He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Matthew twenty-seven forty-five to 54 now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God.
0: Well, today we turn our eyes to Jesus in a very special and important way. The story of Easter is a very familiar one and yet an endlessly meaningful one and to help us Grapple with it afresh. Over the last couple of years, we've tried to pick out different characters in the story to help us understand what it could have meant for them so that we can better understand what it means for us. Last year, we looked at Peter. On Good Friday, we thought about how he denied and deserted his doomed friend, Jesus. But then we saw on Easter Sunday how the risen Jesus forgave him and restored him. This year, I want to focus on the soldiers, The soldiers who scourged and tormented Jesus and watched him die, and then those soldiers who were there at the tomb on Easter Sunday, the first witnesses to the beginning of the second age of the world. We encounter the soldiers in our first reading, didn't we? Immediately after Pilate washes his hands of Jesus and delivers him up to be crucified, Jesus is taken away into the governor's headquarters where we're told that the whole battalion gathered before him. It's possible that there were as many as 600 soldiers here in this moment, vicious, angry men jostling and bullying Jesus, slapping him and beating him. And in the verses that follow, we see them act out this devilish pageant of contempt and ridicule. First, they strip him naked, exposing his vulnerability and reading him for scourging. Scourging was often done for those who were about to be crucified, and it was so horrific that some would not even survive to the cross. William Barclay writes that this scourging was a terrible torture. The victim was stripped; his hands were tied behind him, and he was tied to a post with his back, back bent double, exposed to the lash. The lash itself was a long leather whip studded at intervals with sharpened pieces of bone and pallets of lead. Men died under it, men lost their reason under it and few remained conscious to the end of it. This would then have caused incredible physical pain but that's not all they want to do here. They want to cause him emotional pain. They're trying to shame him. Verse 28, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisted together a crown of thorns, and putting it on his head and a reed in his hand, then kneel before him to hail him as king of the Jews. Everything here is done to shame him. They would have known the accusations against Jesus, that he had claimed to be the Messiah, the king of the Jews, and so they seize on this with a vindictive glee. Uh, If you go to Jerusalem today... In the remains of the fortress of Antonia, where Pilate tried Jesus, you'll still find markings etched onto the stone that depict a game that the Roman soldiers would play called King for a Day. They would grab a a prisoner, perhaps a revolutionary, ideally a revolutionary, and they'd dress them up and pretend that they were a king, and then they'd kind of roll dice and move this piece around the board, this human dehumanised, to become just a a part of a game. That's what they seem to be doing here. They dress him up in scarlet, the colour of royalty. They thrust this wooden staff in his hand like a king's scepter, then press down a crown on his head, but not of gold, of thorns. And then they kneel in mock obeisance before him, crying out, Hail, King of the Jews. Did they know what they were doing? Did they understand who Jesus was? How deliberate and knowing is this? Some writers think it's not. This is just another prisoner that they're treating like this. Perhaps it's a kind of tall, poppy bitterness, you know, just trying to bring down someone who claims to be something important. Here is someone who they say was a king, and so they try to humiliate them. But there's an edge here that feels very personal. Personal. They spit on him. Their contempt coming somewhere from deep within, expressed as hatred. Why do they hate Jesus so much? Perhaps it's because he's a Jew. You know, the Roman soldiers resented the Jews. as this this people who are kind of a thorn in their side, always causing trouble, never fully submitting to the Roman authorities. And perhaps here then was a chance to, to strike a blow against them. He was their king to humiliate and therefore to humiliate all the people. And yet I think it goes even further than that. You see, they have some sense that Jesus is unique. Luke 22, they blindfolded him and kept asking, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. You see, they sense the supernatural in Jesus. They, they recognise that Jesus has some prophetic ability, they, that he has some sense that others don't have. Surely they knew the reports of Jesus' miracles, that he'd healed the sick and even raised the dead. No doubt the soldiers had wondered at these stories. Perhaps they wondered at his power when he could even restrain demons. And they had no doubt battled and grappled with those who were under the influence of the devil and hadn't been able to control them. So how did this man do it? And so they're aware of this man's power. They sense even that he may be a god. But that's what makes their treatment of him so horrifying and so tragic. See, in the face of this great power, they don't stand back in wonder or humility. They don't even ask for a miracle themselves. Instead, they sneer at him. Prophesy. There's something perverse about this. They wonder if he is God and yet they still set themselves against him. It's shameful. And yet for all of that, they are shameless. They're not afraid to do this. They're happy to blaspheme and mock the power that they see in front of them. This speaks to the attitude of the Romans. They were the greatest power in the world. Their their Caesars saw themselves as gods. They can't imagine a power greater than themselves. But it's not just the Romans. There are other people in this story, the Jews, God's own people who have hounded Jesus all of these years and now enlisted the Romans to do their dirty work. There's a shamelessness in their behaviour as well, their desperate, hideous defiance to God. And yet for all of that, there's something about what's happening here that's horribly familiar, because it feels like our world too. There is a sense that even in our world and in our time, there is this desire to disgrace God, to go up against God, to blaspheme the power that we see. You see it everywhere. You see it in the way that we destroy his creation, abusing his good gifts to us, plan for humanity, even trying to convert and change the way that we are made as male and female. You see it in the way that we defy his commandments. The God who made us has given us instructions for how to live, a manual that reveals his design for us, what works best, and yet we still ignore it and defy it. We laugh at it, reject it. You see it in the way that we talk about God. The very idea that there could be a God is ridiculed as immature and foolish. You see it even in our best bits. You'll have heard me quote Mark Sayers, a Melbourne pastor and writer, who speaks of how we want the kingdom without the king. We want good things, all of the good things that God gives us, but not God himself. And so we want justice, but without God's law. We want peace, but we ignore the Prince of Peace. We want prosperity, but we fail to acknowledge the, the good God, the Father of Lights, who gives every good gift. We want love, but refuse to accept the wisdom of the God who is love. We want happiness, but can't imagine finding it in Him. We want everything that God gives, as long as God is not giving it. We want the kingdom without the king. We want a world where God is not there. It's shameless. It's shameless that we would turn ourselves against this God. It's shameful. And it's personal. I had a friend who called himself an atheist. I I say he called himself an atheist because I, I don't think it's that he didn't believe there was a God out there, said he hated the God that was there. His father had died from cancer and I remember my mate saying to me, I can't wait till I see God face to face, so I can spit at him. My mate would have wanted to be in the crowd there that day, taunting Jesus. Now perhaps you've never said something like that. And yet if you're honest, I think all of us have to acknowledge that there is something within us that can resent God, that can want him out of our life. Perhaps we resent him because of our suffering. Like my friend, you resent the suffering you experience. You hate the apparent pointlessness of it, the, the randomness of suffering and death. You, you cannot understand why life has to be so difficult, why the, why the people that you love have to die or the things that you long for don't happen, why God's vision for your life is different to what you have for yourself. Or maybe that is just you resent his rule. You want to be Lord of your life and you resent the fact that he wants to be Lord of your life too. You want to define your life. You want to choose what is right and wrong, what is best for yourself. Really, that's under there in our hearts and has been there since almost the beginning. Remember how the devil speaks to Adam and Eve. God knows that when you eat of this fruit, Your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation there is that they can be like God and so they don't need God. They can get rid of God. They can decide what's right and wrong, what's good and evil, without reference to him. God is gone. So we can live in this too. We want him gone. We want him absent. We want him ended. And we either ignore him or resist him. We try to live without him or go to war against him. This is sin. This is our shameless behavior, that we would defy this God who has full rights over us, taking his gift of life and refusing to acknowledge him with it, rejecting his right to rule and defying his authority. This was the heart that was there at Easter, that scourged and bullied and crushed and crucified Jesus. And it's there today around us and even within us, this desire to be rid of God. But what if God cannot be removed? What if no matter how hard we try to resist him and reject him, he remains powerful and present. What if he always remains God? That's what we see in this story. See, as we read on, it looks like God is gone. It feels like that. As Jesus hangs on the cross, this great darkness comes over the land from the sixth hour, which was noon, until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. It's the brightest part of the day, and yet darkness reigns. And in the midst of this hellish darkness, Jesus yields his spirit and dies. It's a very real darkness and yet it's deeply symbolic too. Darkness speaks to evil for the forces that oppose God that go up against him. And no greater evil has there been than this moment here where humanity sought to destroy God once and for all. In Luke's gospel, we're actually told that the sun's light failed. It couldn't work anymore, as if the heavens themselves were ashamed by our sin. Matthew Henry writes, the sun never saw such wickedness before, and so it withdrew. It's as if the world is being uncreated. You know, in Genesis we read that God spoke and brought light into the world, That he turns everything on, that he brings order into chaos. But here, all of that is being wound back. Darkness is reigning. Chaos, the chaos of our rebellion, has come back. The Creator has been snuffed out by His creation. This seems like the defeat of God and the victory of sin. And yet, as we read on, God's presence. And power becomes abundantly clear. There's miracles. The temple curtain is torn in two. There's earthquakes. We're told that the tombs were opened in some bizarre way. In this moment of death, life comes the people are unnerved Luke 23 all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts they had come to laugh and to to joke at this spectacle to enjoy it but they go home humbled there's no more cat calls there's no more jokes or boasts the mood has changed they sense something ominous something profound is happening in front of them What I'm most struck by is the response of the soldiers. Verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. The soldiers see what's happening around them and are moved to faith. This is... Remarkable. These soldiers are hard, tough men. They've seen many deaths. They would have killed many people themselves. They would have seen many criminals crucified on a cross just like this. But never one like this, really. Never one like Jesus. When others died, the sky didn't go black. The sun didn't fail. The tombs weren't opened. The earth didn't shake. So this death makes them think. The centurion would have known what people had said about Jesus. He was probably at the trials or knew of them. He knew that Jesus had been accused of claiming to be the Son of God. But in this moment, the centurion and his soldiers begin to wonder if this could not actually be true. Michael Wilkins says Jesus is innocent of the contrived charges which then leads to the logical conclusion that he is truly who he claimed to be, the Son of God. As they watch the supernatural darkening of the sky, the temple torn in two, the earth shaken and the tombs open, they are struck with the realisation that Jesus just may be who he said he was. And in awe they pronounce, surely he was the Son of God. The cataclysmic events surrounding the crucifixion testify to Jesus' true identity and the centurion and his men make a step of faith to acknowledge the truth of that testimony. We're told that the centurion and his men were filled with awe. Throughout Scripture, that's what happens when humans encounter the reality of God. Just think of the disciples in the boat when Jesus calmed the fiery wild seas. Mark 4, they were filled with great fear. Well, think of Peter, James and John at the transfiguration. As a voice comes, this is my beloved son. And they heard this voice and they fell on their faces and were terrified. And so again, here in this moment, these men sense the truth that Jesus is no mere man But the God man they sense his power and I find this remarkable because they sense his power here at this moment at the death of Jesus at the moment when it looks like God is least powerful most fragile and overwhelmed and overcome by his creation it is in this moment even here that people sense the true power of God. Because this moment, which looks like his defeat, is actually the moment of his victory. The shameful, shamelessness of humanity will not overcome the glory of Jesus. You see, all of this was planned and purposed by God. Jesus knew this, knew what was coming. He predicted it. He told his disciples that this was exactly what was going to happen. And so his life wasn't taken, it was given. See how Matthew describes the moment of his death, verse 50, he yielded up his spirit. He he gave it up. It wasn't just taken from him, he gave it. It was within his power to give it. Because he had chosen this destiny. This was the work God had given him. This was the mission that he had come to accomplish. To turn our shame into glory. Think back to the start of our reading today. Think back to Jesus there, naked and vulnerable. Humanity was created to be naked. And we've all seen those discreet little pictures in kids' books of Adam and Eve. Genesis 2, we're told that they were naked and felt no shame. What an extraordinary picture. There was nothing, though, for them to be ashamed about. They were completely at ease in harmony with God and with each other. There was nothing that gave them fear, embarrassment. There was no regret, no shame. Shame only came into the world because of sin. In Genesis 3, as soon as they disobeyed God, we're told that the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Suddenly, for the first time in their life, they felt shame. They felt unworthy. They felt uncomfortable and unsure between themselves. And they ran from God because they knew they could not face him. Nakedness then speaks to our shame too. The recognition that we cannot stand open and vulnerable before others or before God. The sense that we have fallen short of God's glory and we need to cover-up. Hebrews 4, no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give accounts. That's the reality. The shame that we feel We know that we carry this before God. And so we hide in our shame. Or we have different responses to it. Some of us try to deny it, to deny that there's anything to hide, even if others can see it perfectly clearly. Some of us try to cover it up, ourselves, to to fix things up. So much of religion is the attempt to kind of uh, create a, a covering for ourselves so that we can stand before God. Now, others claim not to care. They're shameless about it. There's a defiance before God. And that's what we see here at the cross. People shamelessly defying him, resisting him. And yet there's this poignant irony in all of this. You see, the one person who is naked is the only person who need not fear it. Jesus is the one, the one human who has not sinned. He is the one among all humanity who has refused to disobey God, who has always trusted him. And so in this moment, his nakedness is not his own, it's ours. Jesus has come to carry our shame and to take it from us. You see, our sin, our rebellion, exposes us to God's judgment. It demands justice. There must be a payment for it. And Jesus offers to pay it for us. He takes on our sin. He exposes himself to all of God's justice so that we do not have to. And because of what he did, we can be clothed clothed in his righteousness. That's how the Bible speaks of it. Isaiah 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Feel that today. Let that come home to you today we all carry shame with us we all entered today with some part of our life that we don't want others to know we carry the shame of the things we've done against god against others against those that we love and maybe there's a couple of people who know maybe you've been able to share some of that with A parent, a loved one, a friend. Maybe it's something that only your husband or your wife knows about. Maybe it's something that they don't, even they don't know about. But you carry it. This black mark there in your heart, in your mind, this shame that you feel that brings your head down that makes you fear to be exposed before God. I want you to know today that God can see it. God does see it. You can't hide it from him. But I also want you to know that he is here to take it away, to carry it, to clothe it that Jesus wants to take your shame and deal with it himself and then give you his robes of righteousness. He wants you to lift your head and face God, clothed in the robes of his righteousness, in the garment of his salvation. He wants you to know that you can stand before him in glorious white. This is why Good Friday is good. See, it feels like the defeat of God this moment, but it's actually his victory. This is the moment where he overcomes sin and defeats even shame, where he takes all of that and triumphs over it, establishing his glory. Hebrews 2, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone and bring life to all who trust in him. See, there's one thing that these soldiers don't quite understand. They They understand something and there's enough faith there but they don't yet know the full story. you see how they say, truly this was the Son of God? This was the Son of God. They see in this moment his power, they see his greatness, his perfection, but they don't understand the full story. Jesus was the Son of God, but he is the Son of God. He died on Good Friday. They saw him die and their friends will see him rise. We know how the story ends. We know that this death that Jesus had on Friday was not the end, that on Sunday he rose. And that is so important because it proves to us that everything is true. The payment for our sin was death. Jesus paid that and because he fully paid it, he rose again. He took all of the punishment that we deserve And so now we get all of the benefits, the prize that he has won for us. This is the proof that we can be forgiven. His shame is turned into glory and ours is too. And so this Good Friday, as we once more encounter the cross, see the power here even in this moment that looks so broken. You see, no matter how much the world might defy or deny Jesus, it turns out he is undeniable. Where others fall, he stands, and all of us must grapple with his death. The dead Jesus is the risen Jesus, And he has triumphed over all things. Colossians 2, you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. It's all done away with. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The shamed Christ is the triumphant Christ and his shameless enemies are defeated and all we need to do to respond to this is humble ourselves and acknowledge his power and his grace so what I love about these Roman soldiers is that they they represent all of the world's power the greatest human power that had been to that point point. and yet when they sense a different power a greater power, the true power, a power they cannot contend with, they are willing to acknowledge it. And ultimately, this shows how extraordinary God's power is, that this is a power so strong that it can even soften the hardness of the world. These were hard men, accustomed to death and cruelty, but here they are humble and soft. To see jesus as the son of god will our hearts be softened in the same way today will we be soft enough to acknowledge our sin our rebellion and to give that shame to jesus because he wants it and then he wants us to be clothed in his righteousness Derek Tibble writes, Before the cross of Christ, countless men and women of every generation and culture have stood in adoring wonder and humble penitence. The cross stands at the very heart of the Christian faith, manifesting the love of God, affecting salvation from sin, conquering the hostile forces of evil, and inviting reconciliation with God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for Good Friday. And the cross lord uh, we see the shame of jesus up there on the cross naked and vulnerable and yet he carries our shame the shame of our rebellion the shamefulness of our shameless defiance thank you jesus that you did this thank you that if we give this shame to you you will give us your glorious righteousness. Lord, our heads are bowed because we feel your power and your perfection. Lord, today and this weekend, lift our heads because you invite us to look to you, to walk in confidence clothed with your love and the purity of what Jesus has done. Clothe us in this moment, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.